privacy policy in terms and conditions posted at textplan.us. Texting and rules for occurring automated text marketing messages. Message and data rates may apply. Reply stop, opt out. The pandemic has been hard on all our kids. New studies show more than one in three children who started school in the pandemic now need intensive reading help. That's right. Millions of kids in kindergarten through third grade in the United States cannot read at grade level. Here's the good news. Your child can be reading in just 30 days, guaranteed, with Hooked on Phonics. Even if your child has been struggling, Hooked on Phonics will teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. And right now, you can get started for just $1. Text the word GRADE to 323232 right now. Hooked on Phonics is highly effective and incredibly fun. And everything can be done right from home and in less than 20 minutes a day. For more than 30 years, Hooked on Phonics has been the proven learn-to-read program that kids love to use. Text GRADE to 323232 and teach your child to read in just 30 days, guaranteed. Text GRADE to 323232 right now and get started for just $1. Text GRADE to 323232 now. Text GRADE to 323232. I am your host, Alyssa. And I'm your host, Ashley. This is our podcast, Two English Majors, One Analysis. A show where we analyze literature to film with reference to pop culture. This week, we are covering To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee, which was published in 1960. Also, we have some exciting news to share with you all. Ashley, do you want to go ahead and (laughs) say it? Yeah, so for anyone who doesn't know um, me personally, I am a social media coordinator for a literary magazine on our campus, NKU. And at our open mic night earlier, like almost two weeks ago now, I asked if I could announce our podcast and our director for the NKU English department said he was going to give us a follow. And I did not believe him. Lots of people say that they're going to support you and listen to you. But all of a sudden I got an email from him about how he liked our podcast. And now some of my English professors have talked to me about the podcast and they want to support us in this journey that we're taking. To be honest, we didn't think that that would happen. No, I mean, <laughs> this was originally started for a class project. So we really only expected one professor really to ever hear it. And we try to market this towards students, but apparently he announced it to all of the English professors. Which we're grateful for. <laughs> yes, we're very grateful for that. And it's just kind of awesome just to kind of walk around campus and just have somebody be like, hey, you're the person who does that English major podcast, right? And you're like, yeah, that's that's us. And like, here's we run it. Do you want the link? Yeah, yeah, I want to hear that. And so mm-hmm. it's it's just kind of be fun to be like this. No, I don't want to call us a mini celebrity, but mini? <laughs> <laughs> but no, it's it's just been awesome to know that the people who taught you everything about what we're doing right now. This is they're who we got this skill from. They're the ones who's helped us craft this skill and uh, make us better at doing this, at analyzing literature, and mm-hmm. they're supporting you all the way through. It's just an amazing feeling. Yeah, no, we are so excited. The NKU English Department has even posted our podcast on their social media now, which is very exciting for us because it kind of gets the word out. I mean, it's hard when you're starting a podcast and you're trying to market yourself on social media, but now that we have that support, we really do have the best like staff at our college. I mean the amount of support and feedback and like we just are so grateful that we don't even know what to say because it's so awesome but there is another person who we would like to thank and that is our international listeners yes we have been looking at our analytics that we get from our podcast when we publish and i think we're up to six countries now we have six other countries only 85 percent of our listeners are in the u.s where we are and we couldn't be happier. I text Alyssa every, every time, time I see a new country <laughs> pop up on our board. Every time she's like, look, we got one from Belgium. Look, we got one from Poland. Oh my gosh, more people from Mexico are listening to us. And it's every time, every single time. And it's 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 absolutely amazing just to get these texts. And I don't, I don't know, it's just like a little burst of like joy in my brain for a couple of seconds to know people are listening. So very, thank you very much. Yeah. Yes. And we got India, Australia and Canada and Germany. So wait, was that seven? Maybe. <laughs> Either way, we're so excited. So we are really happy and we hope that this podcast helps you, whether you're studying English and you're trying to learn more about literature and how to analyze it or whether you're just interested in the works that we are reading. 
So, and then one other thing we noticed when looking at our analytics is that we actually, a lot of times it'll show us the amount of men versus women that are listening and it's pretty even, but all of a sudden we had something new pop up, which was someone who referred to themselves as a Mm non-binary. And that made me so happy. I immediately told Alyssa about it because we really want this podcast to be inclusive to everyone. We both are in full support of the LGBTQ plus movement wholeheartedly and black lives matters which yes. i think is a good thing to preface when we're talking about to kill a mockingbird we both are in full support very important yes very important very important to both of us so that is something that we just wanted to include in this intro and if you're new listening to our podcast on this is our third episode then yes. welcome we hope that you feel included we hope that you love analyzing literature and films and Yep. pop culture as much as we do. I hope you can join the discussion. I hope you can join the discussion or learn something as well. <laughs> so, so Ashley, when did you first read this book? So I first read To Kill a Mockingbird in eighth grade. Same to when I we covered Lord of the Flies. I read it in eighth grade and that's when I also watched the movie. Yeah. I remember reading this in freshman year of high school. And we also watched the movie, but apparently I don't remember watching the movie. I know that we did. I don't, but I must have been gone again. I don't know where I was in high school. Apparently I wasn't there. I never was there in high school. So <laughs> Alyssa's like, I became an English major because I always read the book and I just did not show up for the film. Basically, that's exactly what happened. I, I didn't show up for anything in high school, apparently. Gosh, I'm terrible. So I'm going to start off by reading uh, the book synopsis. A gripping, heart-wrenching, and wholly remarkable coming-of-age tale in a South poisoned by virulent prejudice, it's, it views a world of great beauty and savage inequities through the eyes of a young girl as her father, a crusading local lawyer, risks everything to defend a black man unjustly accused of a terrible crime. And now, Ashley, to read the IMDb page synopsis. All right, so this movie was made in 1962, and here is the synopsis from it. Atticus Finch, a lawyer in the Depression-era South, defends a black man against an undeserved rape charge and his children against prejudice. And that's the whole, like, synopsis from (laughs) IMDb. IMDb, gotta get their work together here. I mean, come on, IMDb. And... (laughs) It's not like their information's wrong. It's just very short. And I think it's because it's like an older movie. Because obviously in 1962, IMDb was not around. That is true. (laughs) I don't know. I feel like you could still find somebody to write a better uh, synopsis or summary than that. I don't know. Because even with uh, the other book that we read, Lord of the Flies, it was literally 11 words. I still remember. 11 words exactly. (laughs) Exactly. It's just like so short that you don't really gain a lot of insight into the book because of its definition. And this movie was directed by Robert Mulligan. Yes. So, and then we also have one thing that we brought in this week, which we thought was interesting is Alyssa's boyfriend had a screenplay version of the book yeah he had just bought it from a half price books and so he told me about it and I was like we're doing that book for a podcast and I was like can I please borrow that from you he's like yeah sure go ahead I hope he doesn't get too mad because I do have some uh annotations (laughs) in here too but it's nice because now we have direct quotes from the movie and from the book because I watched the movie following along with the screenplay as well written both by the same person, Horton Foote. So it's exactly the same. Minus like a a few words here or there, but other than that, exactly the same. And one thing that we wanted to mention as well for this episode that makes this more of a special episode, I feel like, is that two of my professors actually mentioned to me interviewing one of the professors at NKU, uh, Dr. Kolick who is a national expert on To Kill a Mockingbird. Yes, and uh, neither one of us has had him for a class either. So it was a little bit, (laughs) I I don't want to say nerve-wracking, but a little bit daunting to like go up to a professor you've never had and and be like, hey, can you, can we ask you some questions? (laughs) I don't know. It was, Ashley did a lot of that. So that's all on her. 
Yeah, I actually just kind of waited outside of his office and then like he had his door open and I peeked in and I was like, hey, I know I've never had you as a professor, but can I ask you some questions? And he's like, uh, what? No, he was really, really nice, actually. And I told him I was like, I was like, you know, we're doing a podcast. And he mentioned that Dr. Alberti had mentioned it to them. So he had a little bit of a heads up, I feel like, by knowing we were doing a podcast. Yeah, I just don't think he knew that we were doing To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. And so I asked him and he actually has written his own book about To Kill a Mockingbird that he co-wrote with someone. So and his book is called Mockingbird Grows Up Rereading Harper Lee's edited by. Uh, Chelly Reuter and uh, Jonathan S. Kolek from NKU and uh, Shelly Reuter is from the University of Cincinnati. So both colleges that are close to us. Very close. Yes. And so that actually got published in 2020 and you can find the link on Amazon and we can actually post the link on our social media. So if anyone wants to read to do a deeper dive into To Kill a Mockingbird, you're more than welcome to. Yep. So if you really like this podcast and you still want to know more and if you like what he has to say, go ahead and find his book on Amazon. Mm -hmm. And he was so kind in his email interview that we did with him after after I introduced him to myself formally in person, I sent him an email in which he responded with questions and answers. So from his book, Mockingbird Grows Up, he actually gave me a passage that we would like to start off because it talks a lot about some things we want to cover and just the movie itself. So here's the passage. Many factors have accounted for its popularity, the engaging voice of its narrator and the accessibility of its characters. It's seemingly unambiguous universal morals about race justice and empathy and its adaptation into an academy award winning film starring gregory peck who created an un an indeliable image of atticus and that's from page 22 of his book yes so uh the thing about um the movie versus the book is that Gregory Peck had quite a bit of influence on the movie. Him and his lawyers both did. So even though in the movie, it's still kind of told from Scout's point of view, which we'll get to that a bit more later. It really does focus more on Atticus's character than it does on Scout's. Yeah. And he actually, Dr. Kolick mentioned that to us because there is a book that he read, I'm assuming in research to, for his book, or maybe just because he likes To Kill a Mockingbird. Yeah. He didn't specify. He just specified in the book why To Kill a Mockingbird matters. It explains that Gregory Peck was a huge star during the time that this movie was released. And he was given a little bit of power over the final product of the movie. And so he wanted it to feature him more than the kids, even though the book itself is focused on Scout's point of view, because it's like this loss of innocence. Mm hmm. Of a child, which is actually part of... Alyssa, did you want to describe the bird meaning? Yes. So for another class that I had to do, um, I had to analyze different symbology meanings of different birds. And so when I was doing that, this is like the best thing as an English major, though, is when, you, when you're looking for one class and you find something that helps you out with another project or class, it's amazing. Um, I found out that a mockingbird can also mean uh, innocence. So it tells you from the title it's to kill a mockingbird it's to kill a child's innocence in a way so it's it's all about right there on the title scout learning that the world isn't as happy or as uh, great as she thinks it is and she's starting to learn how the world actually works yeah and that's shown throughout the book a lot better than it is from the movie because like we said Gregory Peck had some influence on the film and so the movie mostly focuses on Atticus and the court trial which is a huge portion of the book mm -hmm. but we lose a lot of characters like the finch's extended family is not featured in the film they are not no it it kind of loses a lot like we were talking about it earlier like dill mm -hmm. dill in the book versus the movie in the movie dill's kind of annoying <laughs> he's oh like, yeah i can read and then Jim's like, oh, really? He's like, yeah. And how old are you? Seven. Wow. Well, my sister can read, too. And she's only six. So <laughs> or something like that. And it's just you don't really get a lot of Dill in the movie. He's just kind of there to be there as like 
because he's in the book, so you have to put him somewhere in the movie rather than make his character actually important, which I feel like is it's what kind of happens to Dill. Yeah, in the movie, he, I told Alyssa, I was like, he's annoying in the movie. And I was like, not that he's not, like, he almost seems pretentious in the movie. Mm-hmm. Like, he thinks he's better than them, but then he's like, oh, wait, they're maybe better than me. But, like, in the book, it's a little different the way he comes across. And that might just be my own reading mind when I'm reading it. Yeah. like picturing him saying things different mm-hmm. and then you also mentioned like the tall tales that he says which um in the movie it does include it but it's it's mentioned brief blah, 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 briefly once and so you don't really kind of truly understand this character around dill because he only goes to the, this town with to live with his aunt during the summer so you kind of had this background, like, well, what do his parents do? Where are they? What's going on there? So you can tell he's like, I don't want to say that he's not loved by his parents, but obviously there's this kind of disconnect from the two. And then you kind of understand this a bit further when he says that one of these, that his father is a pilot, used to be dirt poor, but now is a pilot. And he one day is going to drop by on this town and pick him up to fly. Which to me, when I first read this, it kind of sounded like something that a parent would tell a child to kind of make them feel feel good but in reality it's probably never going to happen and it never did so yeah and that's one thing like one thing he specifically mentions is that like his dad used to work on cars and now he works on planes and now he's going to come back and swoop him up one day and take him far far away from Maycomb Mm -hmm. but as like an outside view looking into the story you're like that's probably not going to happen and you almost wonder if it's his aunt telling him these tall tales to like make it not seem as bad that like he's not with his parents yeah and it's just a lot of that is kind of lost within the movie because it's mentioned once and then you never really it's not that you don't hear from dill again because he reappears but all that's just kind of lost in translation within the movie because like again they do focus a lot on atticus so it's just you lose dill so that's one of the characters that you kind of lose within the movie yeah, and one thing that I actually wanted to mention through my email interview with Dr. Kolick was that I asked him if he thought the movie did a good job of portraying the book because I was curious. You know, he's a national expert on To Kill Mockingbird. Obviously, I want to know his opinion. <laughs> <laughs> and um, he told me that he thought the movie was worth seeing and that Harper Lee participated in the process of creating the movie which i think is also because the book came out in 1960 and the movie came out in 1962 there was a very small gap between like the book releasing and the movie releasing but you know it's become a classic and he would agree and i've seen it we've when we do research we always look at things it's hard after seeing the movie to think of atticus when you're rereading the book as anyone except gregory peck yeah, and I, I'll i mention this because I don't know why. I'll just mention it. Gregory Peck was a big star, and even I, to this day, will be like, yeah, he was he was very handsome. He was. He was a very handsome dude at, at that time. So I, you can understand why he was kind of popular, even with how he portrays Atticus, though. He's just a very, like, very stoic, very, like, firm, you know, in his beliefs type of person. It's, it's, it's hard yeah. not to, like, when you're watching this movie, kind of a little bit be in awe of, that character well and like i was actually talking to my future sister-in-law last night and i told her how we were covering to kill mockingbird and she is not as into literature as i am obviously but she was like oh yeah the lawyer dude from to kill mockingbird i always thought he was so hot and i was like oh my gosh like i was like i was like gregory peck i was like don't worry i'm pretty sure any woman who watched to kill mockingbird when it came out in 1962, was like, ooh, Gregory Peck. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I very much so came to Ashley the other day and was like, he's, he's a good-looking dude, because he was. So that's that's not hard, really, to, like, to take two and two together, take one and one, put them together, and understand why, why that is a thing. But Well, and just looking at the characters throughout the movie, I mean, we have a lot of characters who we lose meaning for like miss dubose is a grouch in the movie Mm -hmm. but in the book we get that insight as a reader as to why she's a grouch that's lost within the film 
Yeah. It, she's also very, very racist. A very racist character. And that's not shown in the movie at all. She's just kind of shown once and then that's it. Yeah, and then the family's housekeeper, we lose so much of her connection with Scout and Jim in the movie. Yeah, Calpurnia, because in the book, it's talk, it talks about how she takes them to church, and she's more of like a mother figure to them, since their mother isn't really in their lives. Uh, their mother passed away when Scout was two, and she kind of takes care of them and teaches them, tries to at least her best as what you can tell from the book to teach them about uh, life and stuff. But that's all really kind of lost a bit in the movie as well. Oh, yeah. Well, and like when Calpurnia takes the kids to church and stuff, you know, it's almost like Scout in the book is like learning about her life outside of being a housekeeper for them. Yeah. Like she gains insight and it kind of contributes to that like this is a story of Scout's perspective of growing up and, like, losing innocence to what's happening in the book. Yeah, there's a lot of um, stuff like that. Like, the quote that I really want to say, and it's a quote by um, Charles Lamb that's at the very beginning of my book. It's, lawyers, I suppose, wrote children once. So it's all about this um, kind of fact that you see the world differently as a child. Mm-hmm. And so there's these horrible, awful things that we do as adults that children just can't understand. And is that a good thing or a bad thing that children can't understand it? Again, loss of innocence, yeah. which I'm not saying Calpurnia taking her to church is a loss of innocence. But I'm saying that like seeing Calpurnia outside of her own household and seeing the community mm-hmm. that Calpurnia's part of and like what they go through is helpful to Scout in understanding the perspectives. Yes, it is. It's something that we wish that we could do with a lot of children nowadays, you know, just kind of introduce them to an entire new world. But that's more so on our education system, really, than I would believe on everything else. We have conversations about this a lot in our classes. And I'll always mention how awful the American education system is for not really introducing stuff like this to our younger generations. Oh, yes. Well, because me and Alyssa right now are in a class called Diverse Voices. And all we do is we study voices that are not the traditional, like, white Amen. voices. Yeah. Like, yeah. like we are reading so many authors who are not part of, like, I would say our self-identity, if that's the correct word. Yeah. I mean, we read a lot of... um and this is this is a coined term. It's called Afalacha. So it's about a bunch of um, African-American ind- individuals who grew up and lived in Afalacha, but always felt kind of disconnected from that community because it's actually a definition was a white was it was termed like a white group of people living and, in Appalachia. Yeah. And they were like, no, that's that's not correct. So uh, they coined their own term Appalachia and became this group of poets and writers. And it's absolutely mm-hmm. amazing. Yeah, I would actually say because I have been reading Appalachian literature, mm-hmm. rereading To Kill Mockingbird had it almost more meaning because I was like, even though like Harper Lee wrote it, but once you are so like open to more ideas and perspectives, which almost leads us into the quote, if you want to go ahead and quote that now. Yes. So um, this is after a fight that Scout has with uh, Cunningham Jr. Uh, so you never really understand a person until you consider things from his point of view. So you climb inside of his skin, walk around in it. And I think that, just being an English major and being exposed to so many different voices. I mean, there's another class NKU offers, which is literature of inclusion. And that mm-hmm. took me outside of Afro-Latian literature, but it took me to so many other cultures as well. Yeah, I think I am taking a class next semester that's uh, specifically on LGBTQ uh, voices in literature. So I'm really excited to take that. Oh, class. that sounds awesome. I didn't know that was a class. Yes, I'm really excited about it. Well, I'm taking social issues in literature. So that is one thing me and Alyssa are pretty like big on is different voices. Different voices, yes. We love we love hearing anything from a different perspective. Because that's part of being an English major is you read and learn things from a whole new light that you mm-hmm. never thought you would. Yeah. So getting back on topic to Scout, <laughs> sorry for that little rant. Um, yes. So part of it is that like we mentioned 
that, you know, their housekeeper is almost like a mother figure and you like kind of brushed over that their mom isn't around. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it kind of leads, you know, Scout is mostly being raised by her father and she has her older brother, Jim. Yes. Which makes her kind of a tomboy. Yeah, I kind of like that because you would think, especially within the 60s, that most female characters are all going to be, you know, like <laughs> love dresses, love dolls. That's not Scout in this book at all. She runs around with her brother. She, in the movie, she's portrayed wearing like these overalls and has like this short. Well, like, and the book takes place in the 30s, though. The yeah. movie was made in the 60s, but the book oh, takes place in the right, 30s. Right. <laughs> My mind. Goodness. <laughs> But, um, yeah, so it's placed in the 30s, so you'd think that she'd be very, like, acting like a girl, but she's, like, running around with her brother. and like The tire scene? Yeah, the tire scene where they, like, kind of get up in a tire and they just kind of roll roll her along and stuff. And then even uh, there's this one comment by Jem, and, and he's like, you're acting like a girl every <laughs> every day now or something like that. It was yeah. just like, yeah, you're acting more like a girl every day. And then Scout's like, no, I'm not. It's, it's just kind of like a cute like little moment where she really, really does not. Yeah. And I think it's just kind of like good characterization on oh, Harper yeah. point. Oh, and the little girl that portrays Scout in the movie does an excellent job. I mean, she yes. really like embodies Scout as this tomboy. Yes. And the scene where Scout has to wear a dress and she is just so bitter. She's so mad. And then like, ugh, you can see like Calpurnia and Miss Maudie and then Atticus just sitting there like with like a little smirks on their faces. <laughs> because they know that's how she is. And honestly, just like jumping back real quick to the tire scene, as a eighth grader watching this film, the way that I wanted to roll down a street in a tire, I think that that's something that used to be like shown in movies and shows that's not shown as much now because it's dangerous. But I wanted to do that so, so badly. Dude, I still want to do it. Shoot. <laughs> Get me in a tire. I'm small enough. We got a hill in my backyard. Uh, Actually, it's kind of steep. <laughs> I don't care if it's the last thing I do. It's the last thing I know. <laughs> At least I went out happy. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but, you know, we see Scout as this tomboy and she gets in all these fights. Uh, when she gets in the fight with Cunningham Jr., Jim actually invites him over for dinner yes. at their house. Also, we should say, she gets in fights with boys. It's never girls. She is a tough little, yes. <laughs> little individual. Yes. If Scout had a motto today that's, like, been, like, made for pop culture, it'd be, these hands are rated E for everybody. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. She does not care. <laughs> no. Scout, and it's not like Scout gets in fights because she likes getting in fights. She gets in fights because she's defending her family. Yes. She's either, that's, that's the big reason is she gets in fights not because she's a little troublemaker it's usually because others are and she really she stands up for herself she does she's very hot tempered again it's i think it's just amazing characterization well and you know one of the reasons she gets into a fight in the book is because someone calls her dad an n-word lover yes because he's defending tom robinson who is an african-american man who was falsely accused of rape yeah, so it's it's a very um, kind of harsh scene to watch in the movie, and it's like a little bit also a harsh scene to read in the book, too, because it's coming from the mouth of this um, six-year-old girl who just says it right off the back, having no idea what it actually means. Yeah, because when Atticus asked her why he, she got in a fight, she's like, he said you are a you yeah. know, N-word lover, and... It does. It, it hits very, very hard, and it is a bit of a tricky scene to get past, but I think that's that's kind of the, the point, point of it. is yeah. uncomfortable. It's yeah. uncomfortable to see a little kid use a word like that. Yes, it is. It, it really is, especially because you know they don't understand the gravity of such a word. Yeah, exactly. Like, they don't get it. And it's, you know, nowadays, if anyone says that word, I mean, it's taken with more, like, you do not say that. I've, more fights, more, nobody, like. Nobody should say that word. Nobody should say that word. At all. Ever. No. But it's hard because, you know, in the movie, in the book, we see this word reoccurring. And, like, I will say, because we are, like, in such support for the Black Lives Matters, it's yes. like, 
it's almost it's hard to read, but, you know, it's part of American literature to have that word included, especially when trying to get a point across. Yeah, it, it can be at some times, but it, it, it just has to be done with a lot of care and a lot of thought. And what I mean by that, it's you can't just say no. it willy nilly for no reason. There has to be. You can't write it willy nilly. No, 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 no. But it, this book takes place in the 1930s. So in the 1930s, using that word was more socially and culturally acceptable. acceptable yes. Than it is now. And it shouldn't be used now at all. Yeah, we talked about it. Like, if this movie was made today, that would not fly. That would not fly at no. all. No. It would be hard to see that made into a movie today where that was, like, a scene that they would, like, have to figure out something to adapt it to, yes. to a more modern-day setting. Yeah, so, I don't know. Do you think that they should make remake this movie into modern-day times? Didn't uh, Dr. Kolick make a comment about that, too? Yep, I was just pulling it up. I asked Dr. Kolick if he thought that some of the meaning was lost in the film because it was black and white, and if he'd be open to a modern-day adaptation. And so, here is what he said to me, is that I think black and white captures the time period of the 1930s, which I agree with wholeheartedly. I would be open to a modern adaptation, but there are bigger issues in filming it in color. I do think that screenplay would need to give more attention to Scouts development and the stories and voices of other characters, especially Calpronia and Arthur, Boo, Bradley. Scout learns more from those characters than the movie depicts. Yes, and so especially with the black and white is something that I have said before. I think it should, even if it was made today, I also agree that it should still be made in black and white, but that is because it also kind of depicts how a child views the world. The world is like more black and white. There's good guys and there's bad guys, when in reality, that's not how the world is. Well, and that's one thing that we also talked about too, is that like maybe the black and white was better for the film because back, like capturing the time of the 1930s, lots of things were seen as black and white. Mm -hmm. And the movie is about racial justice, which some people see as black and white. And it's like racial justice should be, you know, stood for no matter what. Exactly. Yeah. There's a lot that can be done. I feel like, especially if you do keep it black and white and I feel like it can have the audience more so focus on the characters and what's going on rather than get distracted by all the pretty colors of a movie, you know, how that can just kind of go very wrong, you know? Well, and one thing I just like that just popped into my head was thinking about like in our episode we did on the green night we talk about color but color is an important part of the story yes color in this story is more about a person being black or white it's yes. not about like like in the green night the reds and the it's greens not it's as, not as important it's not used as a symbol exactly it's it's just kind of at face value really mm-hmm. and so when we're looking at the rape case now So kind of switching towards what the trial's about and what we have to say about that. We have almost this like weird shift in power dynamic because it's a woman who's accusing a man. A white woman. Yes. Of a rape, which is not like, yes, women, we are, if you are a survivor of rape and you are testifying and you are testifying, we salute you in the book though. It's made very clear by Harper Lee that it is a false accusation. Yes, and then, but it kind of gets into this ambiguous kind of with morals a bit when you kind of learn on kind of who actually beat her. Yeah, and one of the power dynamics we're talking about is not a woman over a man. It's a white woman Woman. over a black man in the 1930s. Which kind of one of the quotes in here kind of perfectly encapsulates this where... Um, this power dynamic on why uh, this white woman against a black man. So right here, this is the prosecution asking a Tom some questions. So you have Tom. Yes, sir. I felt right. Sorry for her. She seemed Gilmer, who's the prosecutor. You felt you felt sorry for her. A white woman. You felt sorry for her. And, and then it's there that Tom realizes his mistake because he has a black man 
should not be saying how he feels sorry for a white woman when he has less of like a social standing among their culture. Yeah, so it's kind of led to believe that that's not... <sighs> it's led to believe that that shouldn't be a case. It's not as believable mm-hmm. that he should feel sorry for a white woman because he shouldn't feel sorry for a white woman at all, like you said, because he has less power. So that leaves more of a reason for him to go in rape her because he didn't feel sorry for her at all. Why would he feel sorry for her is what that's kind of leading uh, Mm -hmm. the audience members to believe in the jury. Oh yeah. And we'll get more on like how Mary Ella is actually abused soon. Yes. And we're sorry because we didn't do the trigger warning, but there's a lot of triggers in this book. I mean, yeah, like we like what we discussed earlier. It's N word with the hard R is used in this book. Plus, it's talked a lot about rape and and sexual, uh, sexual assault, assault uh, being abused, being abused by a parent. Yes, so just just a lot of that is within this book. Yeah, and so we know that that can be a trigger, and so we're really sorry that we didn't give that trigger warning earlier on, but. Before we get into like more details about her being abused and like how Atticus does such a great job of proving that it, it wasn't was not Tom. Tom. Yes. Yeah, because Tom was not the one who committed this rape allegation. And he he does. He he proves it that there's no way that Tom could have done it. And yet, yes, because Tom is a, a black man, he is still kind of condemned. Yeah, and so we're going to kind of go back a little bit. One thing that I wanted to bring up was the courthouse scene where Atticus is sitting outside the courthouse because Tom is locked up in the courthouse. Yes. And the group, like the town's men, come to Atticus. And at this point, Atticus doesn't know, but the kids have snuck out. Yes. Jim, Scout, and Dill Dill. have all snuck out to go see what Atticus could be doing. Yeah, I think they... I think they kind of, I don't want to say they knew what exactly was going to happen, but they were just kind of sneaking out to make sure that he was okay. Cause I guess he's usually not out that later. Yeah. Yeah. And so Atticus is kind of sitting outside the courthouse when all the men are telling him like Atticus, get out of our way. Like, cause they were going to kill him. Mm-hmm. They were going to go in there and kill Tom because of this allegation that was made against him. Yeah. And then Scout freaks out because she's kind of, Obviously, it's a scary situation. You see your dad kind of being surrounded by all these other men who are obviously very aggressive towards him. And so she kind of runs up there and runs. All three of them really do. And they say, Atticus, Atticus. Yeah. And they kind of just get into this awful situation, which at first the men try to, I don't want to say they try to rough them up, but they try to forcefully remove the children, which that. Yeah, because they're like, you know, get out of here. Like, you guys are just kids. And then. We kind of see this shaming done by Scout. Like, it's not that she intends to shame Mr. Cunningham. It's just kind of how, it's just what happens. Because obviously Scout is this innocent little six-year-old. And she starts talking about how Mr. Cunningham would go in, uh, go to their house in the morning. Yeah. And offer Atticus, like, whatever he grew on the, his farm. Because Atticus had defended him. In another trial, which you're not really told why or how, but he won that case for him. And so Mr. Cunningham didn't have really anything else to pay. So he because he's poor, a very poor farmer. This is in the 1930s during the Great Depression. Mm-hmm. So he's only able to pay with the stuff he grows on his farm. So he's given nice like green lentils and then uh, nuts, um, which is the only thing that he can pay Atticus back with. And so she's talking about this. And then she also goes to school with his son. And so they talk about how they, um, like, will you say hi for him for me? Will you please do that and stuff? And she's like, will you come in the morning? And so you can tell him that he's just like, oh, what am I doing? Why why am I here? You know, this little girl is like. And that's when he tells everyone to leave. He's like, all right, let's go. Like, let's go, boys. Because, and he said, he said, I'll tell him you said hi, little lady. And it's like. It's this little girl and, you know, she knows Mr. Cunningham because he does bring the goods to their house. Yeah. It kind of has this like realization of she is this innocent girl and what are we going to do to her if this continues? Exactly. And so, again, shifting, I wanted to ask you, 
what do you think they should have put in the movie over the dog scene before I talk about why I think the dog scene is kind of important? I think anything really to do with Boo Radley, anything to talk more about his actual backstory. Because in the movie, you get more of the backstory that was conjured up by the townspeople, but you don't actually hear what actually happened. So like that makes like scenes in the movie where Jem finds all this stuff in this carved out hollow of a tree. Mm -hmm. It makes it more creepy. For example, the two soap carvings yeah. of both Jem and, and Scout. It's if you don't understand the context, it's actually really creepy that you think like an adult man is making soap carvings of your children, of your children, of, yeah. and leaving them in a tree. <laughs> leaving them in a tree, yeah, yeah. No, it's kind of weird. And one thing uh, Dr. Kolick said to me is that in the movie, Arthur Boo Radley is sympathetic and yet mysterious character, but in the book, you get more of his troubled backstory. Mm -hmm. So you actually like know a lot more about him. And in the movie, they do towards the beginning. Yeah. Show the aunt and she's like, she's like, oh yeah, um, I'm just gonna like paraphrase it, obviously. I don't have it verbatim. But she's explaining that Boo at one point was cutting scrap paper with his scissors and his dad walked by and he reaches over and stabs him in the leg and then just goes back to cutting his scrap paper and his mama runs out yelling, he's killing us, he's killing us. Yeah. And that like his dad said that no Radley was gonna go to an insane asylum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that was the moment because again, I haven't read this since I was a freshman in high school, so that's a couple of years ago. So just rereading re this, I completely forgot about that part, and so I was like, "Oh yeah, this is just what the children think," because every child has like this ghost story in their town, you know. Mm -hmm. And then you read it through, and it's like, "Oh my gosh, the entire town thinks that." So that just made it ten times worse. <laughs> Yeah, like, kids can conjure up, like, you know, like, creepy stories about their neighbors who they maybe don't get, like, the best, like, vibes from. Mm -hmm. But, like, the adults in the town also have this narrative about Boo Radley. And then he's here making soap carvings and living little treats in the tree for the kids. And yeah. it's weird. So unless you understand what's going on, it's just makes it even more <laughs> weird and creepy. Well, and one thing is... um before I actually jump into that, with the dog scene, I think the dog scene is important to the book and movie because at the beginning of the book and movie, we have Atticus who's not going to play football for the Methodist church because he's too old. Yes. And Jim has this idea of his father being this old man who yeah. can't do a lot. And so he, there's a mad dog that has a disease that's rocking down their neighborhood and the kids are scared. Calcarina is scared. And when Atticus is asked to shoot the dog, Jim says... He can't do that. He's too old or something along those lines. And Atticus takes it and he shoots the dog. Yeah, trigger warning. A dog dies in this. <laughs> yes. Um, so, the so Atticus shoots the dog and I can't remember who was with Atticus when he shot the dog. But he turns to Jim and he said, don't you know your dad was the best shot in this town? And it kind of like gives us a little insight into the fact that like Atticus isn't what he may appear to be. Yeah, so I think that kind of leads back into when um, Bob Ewell and Atticus have that, like, kind of little standoff yes. when Bob Ewell threatens him and, like, spits in his face. And so you can tell Atticus just kind of walks up and then he just kind of freezes for a bit and, like, steps back. And so um, that's when you can tell that, you know, he knows that, he is threatened by Atticus. Bob Ewell is threatened by Atticus and a bit scared of him. And all that he is doing is kind of like an act to prove who's tougher. But like he kind of knows what kind of a sharpshooter that he was. So um, what do you think? Now, like to go back to uh, the story of Mayella and her abuse. Mm -hmm. So obviously we were just talking about Bob Ewell. So he was the one you kind of learned through this trial that actually was abusing his daughter mm -hmm. and is the one that actually beat her up for this trial. So what do you think? Does that make her a more sympathetic character in your head that she was abused by her dad? So I do feel bad that she was abused by her dad. And I think that that's common for any 
like case we see where a child is being abused by a parental figure. However, I don't think she should have made up a rape a gal- a, <laughs> a rape case about Tom Robinson because it almost feels like she's seeking attention because she is abused. Which I don't think it's wrong to seek attention as someone who's abused, but I do think it's wrong to ruin someone else's life who you know you have power over mm-hmm. to get that attention. I think that's actually something that uh, Atticus also says mm-hmm. in the trial, too, that he feels sorry for her, but still doesn't It still yeah. doesn't give her an excuse to condemn another man. Exactly. And that's like the whole thing is like, she makes up this rape allegation to like, I mean, men wanted to kill Tom because of this rape allegation. And she, when she gives her testimony, if you want to pull up that quote real quick, like tries to make everyone feel guilty for her. Yes. Here it is. So, um, she says, I got something to say, and then I ain't going to say no more. He took advantage of me. And if you find fancy gentlemen ain't going to do nothing about it, then you're just a bunch of lousy, yellow, stinking cowards. The whole bunch of you. And your fancy airs don't come to nothing. Your mammon and your Miss Mailerin, it don't come to nothing, Mr. Finch. Not, no. And then she tries to, like, run, run off. And, like, burst into tears. Yeah. Well, I think that kind of also shows with that outburst that she is, like, troubled. She is going through her own kind of yes. awful mentality right there. And what it is, is a use of pathos. And if you don't know what pathos is, it's when you're writing, you have ethos, pathos, logos, and what we recently learned. Well, I guess I've talked about it before, but Kairos is what we've Kairos, been talking yes. about a lot in <laughs> one of our classes, which I think could be applied to this book, like the use of Kairos in like a timely manner applicable yes. to today. But she's using pathos. To which Atticus rebuttals using pathos all like as well. Yes. Atticus as a lawyer, and I think really any lawyer needs to use pathos, ethos, and logos in a court trial because you have to play on the jury's emotion, but you also have to have that logic of the facts that like back your defendant up. Yeah, it's kind of add on to that a little bit more before I read this next quote. Um, It is a defense lawyer's job. Not to prove somebody innocent, but to get the jury to not believe beyond a reasonable doubt that the person is guilty. And that is a high bar for a prosecutor to make sure. Imagine a bar. The prosecutor has to get the jury's mind above it. Mm -hmm. All a defense lawyer has to do is get that below, Mm -hmm. is below that bar. But actually, it's actually a lot more hard. It's a lot harder than you would think to actually get that mindset below that bar, because most people assume that if you're on trial, I mean, why would you be there? You're, you're guilty anyways without that. So it's kind of very I wanted to make this point because it is very accurate with what he does. And a lot of the things that. Uh, yeah. And a lot of the things that they do, too, is a defense lawyer. I mean, is that they will try to prove that it's somebody else that could have possibly done it to kind of prove their point. In which case, we know as the reader that it's Bob Yule abusing his daughter. Yes, so it's. I just wanted to point that out because it is very accurate to what a defense lawyer is actually going to do. And so back on to uh, the quote. She has committed no crime. She has merely broken a rigid and time-honored code of our society, a code to serve that whoever breaks it is hounded from our midst as unfit to live with. And that's in reference to like, he's talking about Tom because, you know, with this trial, she is trying to get him like kicked out from the society. She's trying to get him removed from the society yes. as like part of her thing. But continuing on, she must destroy the evidence of her offense. But what was the evidence of her offense? Tom Robinson, a human being. She must put Tom Robinson away from her. Tom Robinson was for her a daily reminder of what she did. And what did she do? She tempted a Negro. She was white and she tempted a Negro. She did something that in our society is unspeakable. She kissed a black man. 
And I'm sorry if that uh, word of Negro was offensive to anyone. I uh, I was just quoting the play directly. Yeah, so this is uh, a quote from the movie. Yeah, actually. the play screenwrite. Yeah, but it's still very uh, important to this. Um, what we're trying to say is that in actuality, Tom Robinson was assaulted by Mayella. Yes. Because she tricked him into the house saying that she had all the stuff for him to do. And then when he's like, okay, well, there's nothing wrong with this. There's nothing wrong with that. She hugs him like from behind and then forces a kiss on him. Yeah. Which is when her dad walks in and then Tom Robinson gets the heck out of there. And then where you kind of learn that that's most likely where Bobby will beat his daughter for kissing a black man. Yeah. Yeah. And so we do have that in question, but I think, you know, Atticus uses a great use of pathos because he's trying to fight her pathos of like, oh, pity me with his pathos of Tom Robinson is still a human being. Yes. He is still a human being who is like the quote where he starts off like he's a quiet, respectable and so a quiet, humble, respectable and who has had the un- has who has had the unmitigated temerity to feel sorry for a white woman has had to put his word against two white people. Again, we just have that power dynamic of the 1930s of black versus white. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Tom has two people against him. Granted, he does have Atticus on his side as his defense attorney, who Atticus is, you know, morally good in the book he is like a strong sense of honor for the book and Mm -hmm. for the movie as well so he does have that on his side which i think is why we like get all of these feelings you know wrapped up in ourselves yes and then uh he kind of ends this quote with um now gentlemen in this country our courts are the great levelers and in of court and in our courts all men are created equal Yeah, again, playing on pathos, he is also kind of, ethos is when you are credible for talking about something. And I think in that quote, it's almost like Atticus is testing the jury's credibility. Like, all men are created equal in our courts. You know, are you guys honorable enough to see that this man is not guilty? Yeah, this is, so this entire speech that we've been reading off of right now is his last remarks so usually in a court case uh the prosecutor and the defendant the defense lawyer both give their last remarks their last statements Mm -hmm. and this is what we're reading off of so this is Atticus pleading to the um jury Mm -hmm. on his case as like a final like conclusion like this is what's going on this is what you need to know Well, and during this whole speech, he doesn't just use pathos for the emotional appeal. He uses logos. He is quoted um, saying about how someone with a left hand beats Mariella. But when he has a quote worth saying, like, it starts off with him saying Tom Robinson. And then it's like, I just put dot, dot, dot on my quote that I made because the whole thing's not as important as this part saying Tom Robinson, dot, 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 taking oath with the only good hand he possesses, his right hand. Tom's left hand is not good to use. It was injured when he was 12 using a cotton gin. Yes. So he cannot move it at all. So that logos, that logic of he can't use his left hand and she was beaten with someone who is left-handed. Another point that Atticus made pretty clear is that uh, he had the doctor say, well, there was two, there was two hand marks around her neck, mm-hmm. correct? And he was like, yes. And so then you learned, well, there, there couldn't have possibly have been two hand marks on her neck mm-hmm. if Tom Robinson can only use one of his hands. Exactly. So moving... The story, thinking about Bob Ewell as a character, you know, he beats his daughter, he's racist, and he, like, has that standoff with Atticus. But what do you think about Bob Ewell's death? I don't know. So what happened is that he attacked Jem and Scout on their way home. On Halloween. On Halloween. And so that's when Boo Radley comes in and saves them. 
But in the turmoil, he stabs Bob Ewell and kills him. Now, it's not necessarily known if it was an accident or if Boo Radley really did kill him, kill him Mm. on purpose. But um, that doesn't necessarily matter. So they have this discussion between the sheriff. Hectate. Yeah. Hectate and Atticus. Because Atticus thinks Jim is the one that killed Bob Ewell. And Hectate knows that it was Boo Radley. And so he has this whole conversation where he's like, well, no, Bob Ewell just fell on his knife. That's that's what happened. And Atticus, you are not going to say anything about it because I am not going to put that man through anything else. And so they kind of leave it off mm-hmm. as that. That So it's just what I think, and it's this is where we kind of get back into the moral aspect mm-hmm. of this entire book, is that this man drunkenly attacked his children, beat his own daughter, mm-hmm. condemned, condemned this man essentially to death, is it a bad thing that he dies? <laughs> he dies. <laughs> well, and it's like, because in the movie, you don't get all the backstory of Boo Radley. Like, Boo Radley, like, he saves the kids. Yes. And I think I even mentioned to you when we were talking about it, you know, before recording, I was like, I don't know if, I don't have kids of my own yet, but I have nieces and nephews. And I don't know if a man drunkenly started to assault my children or my nieces and nephews and another man came and killed him. And if the sheriff was like, don't say anything, I don't think I'd say anything, which maybe makes me a bad person and probably is not good for a legal future for me if it ever did happen. But (laughs) I don't think I would say anything because it's that innocence of a child that Bob Yule was trying to take. And he almost takes it from his daughter as well when he beats her. Mm Mm-hmm. So that's also a question I'm going to leave for the audience is what do you think about about Bob Ewell's death? Should uh, Atticus prosecute Boo Radley or should he not and leave Boo Radley alone? I think personally, I like that, you know, Boo's just kind of off of that radar <laughs> because, you know, he's such like a mysterious character already. And even in the book, since we get his backstory, but he's still like you know, this, like, character who's out there for the kids. Yeah. I don't know. I I think I'm kind of with you there, because especially when uh, Scout's like, well, it would be like shooting a mockingbird with it, wouldn't it? And Mm -hmm. I just, I was like, oh, my heart. (laughs) It's like, because I think the importance of Boo Radley, and this is a little bit hard to explain, so I think this is Jem overcoming prejudice herself. Mm -hmm. How, like, the townspeople will have a prejudice against uh, the black individuals who lived there, Jem mm-hmm. G- and Scout at first had this pre- prejudice against the Boo Radley family. Yeah. So that was Scout overcoming her own prejudices and learning from said trial that people are not as bad as you think they are. Exactly. And we will spoil the ending. Tom is found guilty at the end. Tom Robinson is found guilty for rape, even though all of the evidence and in the book you have all the information that he's not guilty. Yes, like it's proven very much so that there's no way he could have done it yet because he is a black man. He is still found guilty of this crime. And it kind of gets even worse because they were going to go for an appeal later on because there's no way he could have done it. Mm -hmm. There's no way and it was looking good. But something happens and Tom kind of freaks out of it, but who wouldn't? Who would not freak out in that situation? Society. In that society where that's allowed with the Jim Crow laws and everything, where he starts running and is shot. So we do have a question for the audience, and you guys are free to email us with your answers or message us on Instagram. We do now have our Instagram up and running. Again, it's two English majors, one analysis, and they are spelled out with the numbers. Two English majors, one analysis. That is our Instagram handle. And then our email is just the two English majors, one analysis at gmail.com. But if you break this away from the fiction and you saw this case in real life today, now in 2021, do you think Tom Robinson would still be found guilty? How do you think the court case would change if we applied it 
from taking it from the 1930s into a today's court case? Yes, we think that's just a very important question to ask, especially with everything going on nowadays and how it would be perceived. So, and if you want to know our thoughts, we both think that he would be found not guilty today. But we want to know what you guys think, given the situation. Atticus as like a great lawyer and all of the aspects that are brought into this case from the book Mm -hmm. and movie. Yes, we are just, this is just one opinion from the both of us. Everybody else will probably have many different things to share and explain away to us. And maybe we can learn something too. Yep. And so moving forward, uh, that does conclude our analysis on To Kill a Mockingbird. We do have some announcements as far as our next episode. Yes. So we're doing our next episode on The Passing, which will be uh, on Netflix. Is it? November the 18th. So we're watching it November 18th with the NKU staff. Yes. But it goes on to Netflix November 10th. Okay. So definitely check that out if you're an Avengers fan. It has Tessa Thompson in it. So that's exciting. And for those of you who maybe don't know actors and actresses' names, she plays Valkyrie in the Thor movies. Yes. Yes, she does. Specifically Thor Ragnarok. So it's got her in it, and we are doing an interview with one of our staff members again where we're probably just going to talk to her because we actually have her and we are her students, Dr. Yoey. So she has been gracious enough to let us talk to her after we do the showing with the NKU staff and student body Mm -hmm. to interview her on her opinions because she teaches the passing. She does. It's in our 250 class, isn't it? Yes. Yes. That's what she told us. So we are going to be interviewing her and getting some of her insights. We hope that you liked Dr. Kolick's insights because we did. We yeah. found them very, very helpful. Thank you again, Dr. Kolick. Yes. Yeah, no, we, we watched the trailer for The Passing the other day, and it looks really, really good. And it's another black and white film. So. so we will say we did not mean to do three black and white films in a row. So hopefully episode number five will be a color film we're gonna try our best we have some ideas of what we want to do but the passing is filmed and it was filmed like this year and it's releasing this year and it's still in black and white and so we kind of thought it was funny because we talked about the importance of to kill a mockingbird being in black and white and now we have this other movie about racial justice and being black and white yeah yeah, also in black and white we're just little geniuses no no don't quote that gosh no so we look forward we wanted to thank everyone who's listening to this episode and we really hope that you liked our episode on to kill a mockingbird yes thank you all so much for listening we don't know where we'd be without the support of everybody who's listened and helped us out yeah the nku english department faculty you guys are awesome we love you we maybe feel like we're being graded a little every time you listen but that's okay as long as you're enjoying it. (laughs) That's all that matters. Don't judge us too harshly. (laughs) But we're excited for all the other people who are listening who maybe aren't in the English academia, like, sphere with us. Yeah. We want to say that we love and support you guys. Do you guys ever have anything that you want us to do? Or if you're just someone that's maybe wasn't ever an English major, just appreciates reading, send us an email. Like I said before, two English majors, one analysis, Send us a book and movie you want us to cover. We want your guys' ideas. Granted, yes. we have a million ideas, but we want to know what you want to hear. Exactly. We need to create a list <laughs> of content that you guys want us to do. We have had some suggestions from other faculty members that I think would be really great to pull in. So, And we're going to have some exciting things come January that we're not going to talk about yet. Yes. But <laughs> if you keep listening... It is only November, so... Also, we don't just want to do, like, classic novels. We've talked about doing stuff like Harry Potter or... Someone suggested Beautiful Creatures. Or Beautiful Creatures, yes. Like, any type of, like, movie or that's been, like, any type of literature that's been turned into a movie. We are happily ready to... (laughs) Well, and we even want to do some Stephen King eventually is what we'd like to do. So, if you have... Stephen King has so many books that have been turned into movies. If you have a favorite, please send it to us. Exactly. But again, we just wanted to thank you for listening to Two English Majors. One Analysis. (laughs) With Ashley and Alyssa, your host. And 
that will conclude this week's episode. Bye. See y'all in two weeks. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice of the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino online. I was only playing for fun, so winning was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's favorite free online social casino. You too could have the chance to win life-changing cash prizes. Absolutely anybody could be like Mary. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumboCasino.com and play for free now. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of the winner.